Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle, and thank you for joining me today. We are going to be covering an important subject matter, and that's anxiety. Did you know that according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, in the United States, 40 million people aged 18 and older, that's about 18% of the population, has an anxiety disorder. Also, anxiety, not depression, is the leading mental health issue among American youth, and it's rising. So joining me today to lovingly and respectfully discuss this topic is Rebecca Ching. Rebecca is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's certified in internal family systems, in EMDR, in eating disorders, and what I particularly love, she's also a certified facilitator and consultant of Daring Way, which is based on the research of Brene Brown. Now, Rebecca's going to discuss anxiety and how it can actually be beneficial what it looks like when it accumulates and hits a tipping point so you can actually seek out the help that you need. We also discuss it through the lens of what my guest calls a culture of never enough, a culture of perfectionism, which leaves us asking questions like, am I doing enough? Have I achieved enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I good enough? The root being a feeling of, am I enough? So if you or someone you love, including a child, is dealing with anxiety, then this show is for you. There's lots of great resources mentioned at the end of this episode, and everything will be listed on thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash zero two three. So let's get into the show. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me with you today. Uh, Well, we are going to be covering quite a big topic, anxiety. Uh, Everyone's experienced it at some point in their lives, and some people, it's chronic for them. So before we dive in, though, I thought it would be so helpful if you could take a minute to introduce yourself and the work that you do around anxiety. Absolutely. So I'm what's called a licensed marriage and family therapist, but gosh, before I'm that, I am human. (laughs) I am a mother. I am a wife. I am a business owner. I'm an entrepreneur. I have been a clinical psychotherapist for 16 years. I own and run an integrative mental health practice here in San Diego called Potentia Family Therapy. And I also have a business working, a consulting and coaching business working with leaders and entrepreneurs, helping them live an integrated life. I have nerded out and have a variety of specialties in uh, Brene Brown's shame resilience approach called the Daring Way, an eating disorder specialist, mm. Our therapy, certified EMDR therapist, and a certified internal family systems therapist. So all of these mind-body approaches have informed not only how I do my clinical work, um, my consulting work, but how I live my own life and how I parent and um, lead in my own personal life. 
Thank you for that. That's great. Um, so anxiety, obviously a complex area. Can you give us a foundational place to begin by defining anxiety as you see it? <laughs> I know this is through I yeah. want your definition um, in your lens based on your experience. So I really want to go meta big picture with anxiety first to say that when we are feeling anxious, it is this beautiful, important powerful internal system that says something is not safe and it takes us to a part of our brain that prepares us to go into fight flight freeze or numb out um, so anxiety is not a place where um, we're relaxed and in in the moment anxiety takes us out of the presence often out of our bodies mm. and into a place of worry a place of fear, a place of analyzing, and a place of comparison, and a place of shame. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. So that's, that's like you said, not a comfortable place to be, though. I know we're going big, so let's, let's start big in sort of the generalities of, you know, common triggers of anxiety, for example. Right. And so just to continue, so anxiety on its own is this important protective internal mechanism, right? Um, prior to modern culture, you know, if there was a poisonous snake, I guess we can see poisonous snakes, but if there was some sort of threat, you know, it was protective and that was it. And so it really was about survival. In modern culture, anxiety has shifted to um like literally I'm going to die if I don't do this to that feeling is still there, but the things that trigger it may be, um, I don't get that job. Um, that reflection in the mirror doesn't look like how I want it to look. I'm not going to mm. be desirable or worthy of love and belonging. Um, I didn't get that grade. So, literally those things that we can say, oh, come on, just relax, you know, which is the worst thing to say to somebody who's feeling anxious, by the mm -hmm. way. Um, they can really trigger this really primal fight, flight, freeze, numb out piece. And if our brain keeps going in that loop, it creates an, our kind of from a neuropsychological perspective, these pathways that feel very default in habit. And then it's hard to create new ways of responding to something that causes discomfort. Mm. And so our brains are hardwired for certainty yes. and they hate risk. Mm. And so the tricky part is if you love anybody, that's risky. If mm. you're trying anything new or learning something new, that's risky. If you're taking a stand or setting a boundary for something that's important, that's risky. So then all of a sudden, this very primal, important, protective internal mechanism can get dialed up. Now, personality, temperament, genetics, um, experiences with difficult life experiences or traumas. And I mean by trauma, it's not just childhood abuse or a big accident. It's like relational trauma, betrayal trauma, um, neglect, mm. uh, deep disappointment. So when we don't deal with those little paper cuts sometimes and the bigger wounds in our story, mm. then again, our nervous system then starts perceiving any discomfort as a life or death threat. And then what I see is, is with people who are 
really bright, really successful, make things happen, multitask, they get frustrated that they can't think themselves through this. Mm. And that only makes them feel worse. And so this anxiety then perpetuates and that becomes almost this new status, it's status quo, this new homeostasis of, of being. And so we're finding in the world of neuroscience and psychotherapy and definitely in researching the brain and the body that there's some mind-body approaches that are really helping uh, people unburden their system and help rewire these default ways of looking at anxiety. Okay, so there's a lot of to unpack there, and I love what you said. It's so it's helpful. It's helpful to understand that anxiety, on some level, serves a purpose. It's useful, um, but at some point, if those little cuts build up, it could become something chronic. And even the most successful people, you know, are dealing with it in their own way, and it's not in any way a you know, some, that something, it's like a failure or something. I think people are so hard on themselves. You know, we were talking before the mic went on of navigating anxiety in a culture of never enough, of never feeling yeah. you're enough. Can we um, talk about, can we talk about, go a little deeper on that? I know we started bigger, but let's go in a little bit, um, a little more, de- a little deeper. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking about this. And so we're seeing, trends. Um, The World Health Organization and I believe the CDC have some statistics and we're seeing a rise in depression, in anxiety, um, in folks attempting and even completing suicide along with substance abuse and um, dependency. And so we're circling the wagons on all of that. And there is this element in our modern culture of what's contributing to this. And I want to make sure in our conversation, we do not pile on parents. It is hard to be a parent. And if you're not a parent and you care for a loved one or a fur baby, it is hard to care for somebody, you mm-hmm. know, have someone in your charge. So I really want to say all this stuff lightly and hold hold it lightly, knowing that everyone is doing the best that they can. But we're we're seeing in a culture where the ideals that we have of what's enough and what's safe, meaning not only a 4.0, but a 4.50, not only a full ride scholarship, but five full ride scholarships at all Ivy League. So we have choices, you know, and so then is it, am I skiddy enough? Am I smart enough? Am I fast enough? Am I, you know, uh, marketable enough? Am I witty enough? Am I doing enough? Am I volunteering enough? Am I donating enough? I mean, the list can go on. But our achievements, how we should look, what we should own, what we should achieve, that's be- if that becomes then connected to our primal safety, yes, anxiety is going to have a field day. And perfectionism is a wonderful catalyst <laughs> for that. And, and really connect deeply connected to perfectionism is shame. And I, I am, as, a, as someone who has studied Brene Brown's work, mm. shame is the intensely painful feeling or fear of not being worthy mm. of love and belonging. And belonging is our oxygen to the soul. So if there's a threat to our oxygen, then that's going to cause anxiety. So then all of a sudden these modern protectors. Now, I used to work in advertising and politics, so I understand 
deeply the amount of money and effort being poured into having us not feel enough Mm. so that we buy a product, buy a service, vote a certain way. So I feel like we also have to look at to our access to these thousands of messages we receive daily that also contribute to what is enough and not enough. Okay. So good. Um, (laughs) No, it is. This is so good. And I feel like I could take this conversation in a few different directions. So let me, um, there's a few things you said that I want to revisit a little bit. So let's talk about sort of low level anxiety. Research is really clear that very low grade levels of anxiety help us get stuff done. Yes, <laughs> we would never yes. get anything done. Sure. And so there's that element of, oh, there's a deadline. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's this exam coming up. Um, you know, oh, I've got this big bill to pay. So I need to make sure we get stuff together, whatever that may be. So there's that little bit of that that we're finding keeps us sharp. It's when that goes rogue, right? Yes. In terms of our system. So there's two couple of things that you touched on, which I think are so powerful and so simple. It gets so important. And I love the curiosity. Now, one of the things that we have to balance is when someone, whether it's with ourselves or with someone else, um, asking a question without an agenda. Yes. So be careful because sometimes we want to maybe even start with, oh man, I see you're really struggling right now. Is that correct? So we want to just name it and then invite um, the person we're connecting with to either affirm or correct us. And what happens there is then that person feels understood and cared about. So there's not, we don't go into fix it mode and we just are like, oh, I see you're struggling right here. Is that correct? And so, I mean, sometimes my daughter would be like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And the tears are coming up. I'm like, okay, she just needs space. <laughs> she doesn't need mom trying to figure it out. <laughs> right, right. But I, I think just too, when if I'm running around and my husband's like, hey, I see, I see you look pretty overwhelmed. Is that, is that correct? And I go, oh, mm. yes, I'm trying to be in five places at one time. And he's like, and then he's like, is there something I can take off your plate? Oh, I love that. Right? That's and that, great. Well, that's the pipe dream. That's the pipe dream. Oh, oh that's not what you he know. would say normally. No, 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 he does, but okay. we all do it imperfectly. I just want to, <laughs> and for anyone listening, I'm just saying, you know, let's, these are, these are the goals. Um, and, and then the other part, so we want to just name it mm. and say, I see you. And sometimes we don't even say words like, oh, this is hard. Mm. Yeah. And not even analyzing it. It's just like, oh gosh, I'm here. And I feel that's also part of why we're seeing such a rise in anxiety is so many people have not learned to fall and fail and struggle and rise on their own. Mm -hmm. So their confidence in not being perfect and not having it all together and what to do with that has diminished. Mm -hmm. And so one of the superpowers we can give those in our charge is to let them fall and fail and rise. And then we use our wisdom in creating some kinds of container or boundaries for that. But when we're creating cultures where failure isn't an option, because for me, like seeing my kids struggle yeah. is definitely one of the most gutting things. Mm-hmm. And it taps into all those fears of, did I do this? Am I a bad mom? Am I doing something wrong? Am I going to cause irreparable harm? And they'll be in therapy the rest of their life, which I don't think, I, I joke and say, I just want my kids in therapy for issues different than what I had. And then I have to be <laughs> careful on how freely I say that, but I digress. So, so I think there's something to the effect of 
it's okay to fail. What did you learn? Because that's how we learn. 100%. That's the data collection. And we have to give time to heal from those falls and failures. We rush through them. Yes. And so then we get some of these messages because it's hard to sit with someone that we love who is hurting. Yes. And so that this work then that takes, we do a U-turn and go right back on our stories and go, okay, what work do I need to do so I can sit with this discomfort? And so that's the beauty of this, right? We get to help others we care about while also growing ourselves. Yeah, no, that's so good. Let's talk about anxiety when it's not useful, when it's not just a deadline or, you know, something like this that you can ride the wave But now it's hit a tipping point, you know, because I know not just adults, but many children now um, are experiencing significant forms of anxiety and depression. And, um, you know, what do you believe is, you know, contributing to this? And then what kind of help is the best for someone who's struggling with intense anxiety? Gosh, I feel like we have so many funnels towards us having these heightened, intense levels of anxiety. You know, again, I touched on earlier just the standards and expectations Mm -hmm. in academics and sports, in health and in beauty. And there also is this, the message too, is if you don't show your emotion, you're strong. And so there's this element, I got to keep it all together. So then you throw in genetics, you throw in temperament and unique personality and family of origin and unique life experiences. And that's a, a petri dish for an anxiety, you know, bomb. So I feel like early intervention is key. And sometimes when I say intervention, it really is support. Um, one of the things I believe how immensely is empowering my children to understand their bodies to respect their bodies and to care for their bodies. My oldest daughter's on the autism spectrum and anxiety is definitely a bedfellow in her life. And so it's for her knowing that, and she's got strong obsessive compulsive tendencies and sensitivities to things um, that she sees and smells and um, hears and and touch too. So mm. it's more like, okay, like a slight me touching her on very slightly might feel like a punch to her. Mm. And so it's just saying, okay, then you need to advocate for what your body needs. She's not broken. And I really feel like sensory issues are under assessed and talked about in the realm of anxiety mm. and that a sound a touch, a smell, a texture, lights, all of those things that can send us to a really dark place. And then we're thinking, this is ridiculous. I should be able to handle this. And we put that pressure on ourselves or that message is given. Like, what do you mean nothing happened? And so there's this dissonance between what someone's nervous system feels and what they're kind of reflected back to. So I think really having a respect and a curiosity of what causes pain in our nervous system, um, I think could really help and empower a lot of people. I think we got to take a hard look at our expectations of ourselves and others. Hmm. I think we're in a reckoning period of what we're expecting ourselves to do and be and all, you know, how we show up. And that's the perfection piece and the over-functioning, which is fueled by anxiety if I just do more, I might calm down. <laughs> I might relax. Right. And so giving permission for struggle and having 
creating homes and schools and communities where struggle is part of the day-to-day stuff, not perfection, where we normalize asking for help and celebrate the courage of that Mm. instead of snicker and giggle and fear. Because it's amazing what we do to avoid being misunderstood. Mm. You know, it really is amazing for all of us. I mean, we don't want to be misunderstood as parents, as humans, as professionals, you know, as kids, because it threatens our belonging, which again is our oxygen for our soul. So I think expectations, um, respecting unique nervous systems, and really understanding the role of, um, and, and creating cultures that normalize struggle mm. and falling and failing and celebrating that, not in a cheesy way, which is nothing wrong with cheese because I am a cheese ball, ask my kids. <laughs> but I mean, I guess maybe not in a platitude way, you know, where it's yeah. kind of like in name, but not in meaning. But it's like, well, that sucked today. What did you learn? Okay, what do you need? And 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 really redefining pushing through. Because in the personal development arena, I see some really dangerous messages out there. Push on through, you know, no pain, no gain. Mm-hmm. And crush fear and And I'm thinking like that's like that's like get a lobotomy that's what that means to me Mm -hmm. like you know don't feel don't be numb out be a zombie and so we're hearing these messages of just think yourself through it but what we really need to do is create cultures where we feel our way through it one of the biggest gifts we can give ourselves and our kids is messing up and circling back saying hey I did not show up for you the way I wanted to when you were anxious there. And here's what I would have liked to do. And I'm sorry. That is such a gift instead of being perfect all the time. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, like there was one day, I don't know what was going on. My husband still reminds me of it. And the kids were driving me crazy. I was feeling edgy with my husband. I remember where I was standing in my house and I looked up and I said, that's it. I am canceling all holidays, all birthdays, <laughs> all anniversaries. I see my kids just like sink. And I see my husband's eyes get big and kind of hold his hands up like, what are you doing? <laughs> You've gone over like, the edge. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go send myself to timeout. I'll circle back later and nothing is canceled, but I'm a little stressed right now. So, and I'm a little irritated with your, you know, your choices right now. So um, anyways, and I think that's on that note too, is we separate the behavior from the person. My daughter will come to me and after she has a, makes a bad choice and said, am I a bad daughter? And I said, oh gosh, no, you are amazing. And I love bomb her. Oh, I love bomb. And, you know, I'll tell her all the things I love about her and I'll say, but that choice of yours, eh, not my favorite. You know, you, you are my favorite. Your choice, not my favorite at all. Mm. And remind both my kids, <coughs> excuse me, and myself, you know, again, I can make ch- bad choices, but that doesn't impact who I am. And I see that calming my nervous system. Mm. But again, resilience is also building up the tolerance of discomfort so that we can make courageous decisions. And then my daughter, who also then reaches out, like if she wasn't talking to me, that would worry me, but she can come to me in her pain and I'm trying to fix it. I sit with her in it. So we want our kids to be talking about their pain. Mm. That is actually a really good sign. When they're saying everything's fine, that worries me. Mm. Um, And so building emotional literacy is another great thing is what are you feeling and where are you feeling it in your body and how do you feel towards that? 
just those three things right there, we don't talk about that stuff. We're always like, how do you get through it so everything is shiny and happy and exactly. fine? Yeah. Oh, that's not the culture I want. No, 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 we don't want that at all. And it's just not real and it's not sustainable. So it's not going to work anyway. Clearly, it is not working. Absolutely not sustainable. And that's why we're seeing the statistics we're seeing around mental health struggles. Yes, right. Because this culture of never enough. Um, I love what you shared about your daughter. And I've been there plenty of times where I just, and it's usually when I'm tired, I've noticed where I'll just snap and be like, you know. I, I would easily call off all holidays or whatever you did. Like, I could see that coming out of my mouth. So I think we need to um, give ourselves some uh, grace around just being human. But I always do what you say, too, which is I go back and say, mommy overreacted. Or I'll say to my husband, I'm sorry if I snapped at you. I'm feeling overwhelmed about whatever. I do have the awareness where I can stop and and do that. Um, Rebecca, you gave us some coping skills or um, like three things we could do with the kids, but I feel like those same things we should be doing with ourselves. Is that true? And what would you say for an adult who is dealing with anxiety? Yeah, same things. We got to live what we want to teach. And I really feel like we don't respect our anxiety. And, and I want to say this, I want to clarify this. Because so often we we say things like, you know, love the body you're in or love your story, um, love your life. And I feel like that's deeply offensive <laughs> to people who have had some really hard things happen or in the throes of healing from hard things. And so what we talk about is choosing respect, how to respect your story, your body, your struggle, even if you despise it. Because, I mean, think about this, like, and, you know, Michelle, you're someone that if you don't like someone, you're not going to get in their face and just be a jerk to them. You're going to choose respect, even if you want to have as little time with them as possible, right? Of course, and I yeah. think, how do we, how do we do that? How do we cultivate respect for the struggle in front of us and holding the tension that we hate it at the same time? We just, just resent it and don't like it. And I think that moves us towards love. I'm, that moves us towards healing. And so that is a place, that's the bridge. And so choosing to respect um, our struggle and sometimes with anxiety, because often it's connected to a multitude of things in our story, um, in our nervous system, in our hardwiring, it takes time to rewire those things, mm. especially as us grownups, those little kid brains, man, we see them move through change beautifully. Mm. And our brains sometimes just take a little bit longer, and that's okay. And we really don't respect long-term, deep work in our culture. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we need to reframe that struggle because if someone really wants sustained healing, we got to dig deep. And it isn't like when I say dig deep as a as a psycho trained psychotherapist too. It's not like going into fetal position and reliving everything. It really is like you were talking about doing the work to build resilience, to be able to tolerate courage in situations that are challenging while staying aligned with your core values and your integrity. And so, so yeah, I think that is the key again, and checking our own expectations of ourselves and others that can hijack our peace in a millisecond when we have unrealistic expectations. And Rebecca, though, what about partnering with someone like you to help work through it? I mean, I think at some point it's too much for many people or for somebody's child to manage uh, alone. Um, yeah. what, can you talk about the, you know, the role of, 
a trusted therapist, counselor to come in and help? Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. And I've been in this field, it's my fourth career, but I've been in this field for over 16 years. And it's hard to find somebody that I feel like is a good fit for myself or my family. Um, It's a field where there's a lot, at least here in Southern California, there's a lot of people trained in it. So the key is really doing the work to find somebody that you're going to feel like is going to move you through your goals and is a good fit. If you don't feel connected with that person, you're not going to, you're not going to move forward. I, I would say I'm biased. There's so many ways to heal. Um, I'm not going to foster scarcity on what's better, what's not. I will tell you the approaches that I've seen really offer sustained change and healing are those around developing shame resilience, um, EMDR therapy, internal family systems therapy, anything um, interpersonal neurobiology from Dan Siegel's work. It's that cluster, whether and even like some mind-body approaches like uh, somatic, sensory motor, those types of words, those are big words. Mm-hmm. But looking at people who not just have credentialed in them, but really embody those approaches in their in, in their work and not just to kind of check a box. Um, but I really feel like it's the whole person approach and not people who are just trying to change your thoughts. We're finding more and more that... Um, mindset and just changing mindset without addressing mental health is is not sustaining. So mm. we have to feel our way to healing, not just think our way through it. Thinking our way through it for someone who wrestles with anxiety is putting gas on a fire. Mm. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you. Um, you mentioned genetics as a contributor. Do you happen to yeah. know like what percentage uh of people out there have a genetic piece to it. So would, so, cause I think there's a lot of undiagnosed depression and anxiety. So it's possible maybe <laughs> you have a parent who had the anxiety and then maybe you have it and maybe you're passing it on to your kid without even realizing. Can you speak to this a bit? Okay. Yeah. So I want to address just briefly the passing on to your kid. Cause I hear that from parents often where they blame themselves. It's oh, those true. are my genetics. So I just want to, to qualify that, we're at this really exciting time in studying the brain where we're learning about what's called neuroplasticity and mm. epigenetics. Mm-hmm. They sound like fancy SAT words, which they kind of are. Um, but what we're finding is that we, depending on the modalities of healing that we use, we can not only change how our brain is wired, but change our DNA, mm. which sounds I'm, and I'm making it sound way more simple than it is. So the fan, if there's anyone listening who's way more skilled in this arena, just know I'm doing a very high level discussion of this. Mm-hmm. But um, so I want to make sure that parents are gentle with themselves if they have been predisposed with, with whether it's traumas, anxieties, um, you know, highly sensitive temperaments, just to be kind to themselves and know that we're equipped now and in this generation to really approach that in a way that can shift the trajectory. So um, I don't have any stats on like who genetically is predisposed, but I do know that there's about 20% of adults in our country that have clinical anxiety. That's not subclinical, not diagnosed. And about 18% of adults um, are struggling with depression. So I think Mm. those numbers are low Mm. and we we really need to look at these issues as spectrum. You kind of touched on that. And so what I encourage people to do is not wait till life is not functioning to get help. 
if we can catch something earlier on before it's a full-on crisis, we have the better we have the wherewithal, and it's easier to do the work to change. But most of us are have very full lives, and are again intelligent, resourceful, independent, make things happen people. We think, oh, I can, I can, I'll read a book, I'll listen to this podcast, I'll. I'll increase my workouts and get an extra massage, which I'm a fan of all of those. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes we have to sit with our story of struggle and really understand where our brain needs some support and our souls need some encouragement uh, to, and our bodies need some unburdening. And we can't think through that. So be picky on who you're looking for. The, mm-hmm. I, I offered those methodologies because that really is where myself and the clinical communities and my team that I work with, that's our lens. And I really feel like that's where the field is going. But start where you can. It's better than not starting at all. Yeah, thank you. No, we arrive when we breathe our last breath. Let's just realign that expectation. Does everything have to be a fight for our lives and a deep struggle 24-7? No. Are there going to be ebbs and flows of life if we dare to love and we dare to try new things and dare to live a life of meaning? Yeah, but no, we always are a work in progress. And I mean, those are the people you and I like to surround ourselves with, Mm -hmm. not the folks that are coasting and numbing and hiding. And I think that that's, that's contagious to be around people that are getting curious about what's something new and different, not in a frenetic way but in a place of uh, coming from a core value. So, so yeah, no, I just want to just say like, no, we're all works in progress, whether we admit it or not. <laughs> it's true. And actually, I think with all the life experiences that we have, it allows us to hold space for other people's pain. And that in itself Amen. is also a gift to be able to be able to go there with them and just be able to be present and not, like you said, try to fix everything, but be able to say, you know what? I know what it's like to hurt. And it's okay. What have you found is helpful for children who are, you know, have, are so anxious that they, you know, can't eat and are starting to see their bodies differently and, uh, you know, are so afraid of getting sick and, you know, really, really obsessive in terms of their ability to go through a day without so much, so much anxiety. What kind of therapy is beneficial um, or what kind of work helps a child get back on on track to not have to live like that anymore? Especially when they, again, it was like me. You're 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 kind of doing your thing, and then something just sends you to a different place for a while. Yeah, it's like a tipping point. Yeah, um, and, and a perfect storm creates some of these things, and it's really hard to watch. And you you toss in puberty and adolescence, and oh my goodness, right? Right. Um, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of different people will give you a lot of different answers to this. Um, there, when it comes to obsessive compulsive behavior, there's very limited data on. There really isn't anything that says this is the thing, mm-hmm. which makes it even more hard. And so I just want to normalize the struggle there. There's approaches called exposure response therapy, which are common and easily measurable. Personally, I find that those approaches can be quite painful. And not always sustainable. There's other ways like EMDR therapy and internal family systems therapy that are more gentle. Um, But 
in a, in, in a residential or a higher intensive uh, treatment uh, center. There's sometimes a place for that. And addressing the thoughts, the cognitive approach to thoughts, feelings, and actions. Again, that's not my lens, but those are the most commonly used approaches with, um, with anxiety. But I find if we're not, do, and really what those approaches say is what you're feeling and doing is bad and wrong versus getting curious and having compassion for these parts that um, are trying to protect, but also you want to be with someone who's skilled in just understanding biology. And there could just be a hardwiring issue with what's going on with brain chemistry um, or some sort of difficult life experience that needs to be dealt with that is mm. exacerbating current threats. And and like I touched on earlier too, I think we need to do a better job looking at sensory integration issues. And so occupational therapists are who really have an appreciation for neuroscience and the whole person, they are a wonderful superpower um, and resource to a treatment team in that situation. Thank you. Um, and you know, you you touched upon this earlier too, when your child is in pain, you know, whether it's through anxiety or some other health issue, it does create anxiety in yourself. So do you recommend that the parent themselves get help to to work through their stuff so that they can stay as grounded as possible for their child? Yeah, I mean, I do. But I also know often many families are in the situation where they're like, okay, I can get my kids some support or me. So I'm going to do my take care of my kid. True. And so, you know, Depending on your time and your resources, I mean, healthcare can sometimes be a real challenge um, or just time, right? But I feel like making the time just to focus on healing and have that be the focus instead of an extracurricular, um, working with schools, working with uh, experienced uh, clinical support team is really helpful. Taking the time to find that right team. And yeah, whether it's clinical support for the parents. Often there's, if there's support groups, depending on the issue, um, if people are in a faith community, taking advantage of pastoral support. Um, and, but, and being careful of going online and researching too much. I feel like yeah. Google is like, it's amazing what I can Google and go, oh, this is so cool. Uh -huh. And then all of a sudden I can go down a rabbit hole that is dangerous. Mm -hmm. So I feel like self-compassion for the parents and rat and and self-care is not a luxury it is an essential component like oxygen when we're loving hard on those that we're caring for whether it's feeding whether it's moving whether it's naps whether it's extra child care and all of that i know is fueled with privilege and so sometimes those things might not be accessible but it, it's also just and pacing yourself and asking for help um it's hard and it can be a really lonely journey. So just if anyone's hearing this and feeling that loneliness, um, know that you're not alone and that there's many people that get that and it, it, the, to stay stay the path and stay the course um, and know that our kids are growing and changing. And if they're getting help and you're doing the best you can, it does shift the trajectory of where they're going to be down the road, especially with anxiety around body image or eating issues. The sooner you get help, the better from specialized care. I have a, certi a certification called Certified Eating Disorder Specialist. So I really encourage your listeners to look for that because so many people treat eating disorder issues, but maybe don't have all of 
the nuance and important training in that area because it can go south quickly. So um, there's a lot of great resources, but so many different approaches. And what I say to parents is, is you know your kid best. Um, I know all these fancy clinical approaches. I have experience with clients over 16 years, and I'm also a mom and a human. But the parents, I always look to them and say, what is your, what is your mom and dad radar say here? Mm. What do you think is best? I listen, what's the mama radar right now say is best for you and your family? And I support that. So I just really, we don't encourage that. And there's sometimes there's things that we know is are best for us or our kids that no one else would get. And that feels scary and lonely. But I really value that hardwiring we've been given on that unique love of um, an awareness and how to care for our kids. So I really think it's it's a real brave love showing up for our kids um, in general, but especially when they're struggling intensely. And it's also very brave and courageous to not to go to a place of blame and shame on ourselves if they're failing and falling. And and it is a marathon. It is a marathon, but we can't do it in isolation. So whatever support looks like that makes sense with your time and your resources um, and your community, it's important not to do it in isolation. Thank you, Rebecca. I've loved everything you've been sharing and the, the compassion that you just naturally do. It's just so grounding and so, so lovely. So thank you so mm. much. I'm wondering, we've covered a lot today. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you think would benefit the women listening today? Um, gosh, I think I would just repeat, um, you know, perfectionism is not a helpful tool. It feels anxiety and shame to really get clear on the expectations you're having and living from for yourself and those that you care for uh, and see if they're really moving you towards the goals that you have um, and really start to build a culture of emotional literacy and welcoming and normalizing struggle. I just really would end on those points because I think we can really change not just families but communities when we start to shift some of those values that not pathologize and demonize struggle and really respecting the pain, even if we despise it. Um, I know you had also asked me about uh, some of my favorite resources. And I mentioned Dan Siegel, um, who is, I, I really recommend his parenting book, his research. He's a MD, but also a clinician and, and is a beautiful bridge of both. And so he's got some great books on parenting. Do you have a favorite really one? Sorry, Rebecca, do you have oh, a favorite? Oh, gosh. So just Google his I, stuff, basically. Any of his stuff? Is... Yeah, I mean, Parenting from the Inside Out, probably, oh, or Mindsight. Yep. And there's one, um, Brainstorm for Teenagers, that's just genius. Mm. Um, I definitely recommend everybody read Dr. Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. Um, it is a beautiful and hard read on this another incredible MD who's also a clinician, trauma trauma psychotherapist too, um, and researcher who's worked with 9-11 survivors and war survivors and and seen really hard stuff. And he outlines various approaches that he's really seen work and really, really helps us understand that our bodies are our wisest part. And if we're not listening, our bodies will shut things down. Mm. Um, and then I guess I just want to recommend everything by Brene Brown. And I mean, daring greatly and gifts of imperfection. I mean, braving the wilderness, rising strong, all of it. I mean, it's a game changer. And that's those, that's the work I love to do. 
those workshops that that's that's my sweet spot that I love mm-hmm. to do uh, especially with uh, with moms so um, I think those are some great resources and the people in those communities are, are wonderful and I would definitely check out selfleadership.org and and explore internal family systems you, you mentioned some of the compassion that I'm feeling and how I talk to some of those parts that are protecting that approach has been a game changer in how I show up in all areas of my life and I think it's also changing the world too. Mm, thank you. Sure. Rebecca, before we wrap up today, can you leave the women listening with your three best tips on managing anxiety? I know you've covered a lot and sort of recapped a bit, but even if you've mentioned something and want to include it, what would be your three highlights? Yeah, you know, just to repeat again, let's assess and evaluate our expectations of ourselves and others. I think we got to get really clear on those because sometimes those expectations may be setting us up for pain and failure and falls that are only moving us farther away from where we want to go. Really move towards building a culture um, that respects and values struggle and falls and failures so that we all can learn how to rise and build that confidence and competence and skill and data points from learning from mistakes and falls and failures versus being perfect all the time. And then really doing the work to build emotional literacy, getting curious about what we're feeling, where we're feeling it in our body and how we're feeling towards it. We do that ourselves and to those that we're caring for. I feel like that's a game changer uh, for sure. Thank you. This has been such an enlightening conversation and one that I think is so valuable and important and that needs to keep happening. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on today and give us a better lens to look at such a big topic. Um, where can people learn more about you and your work, Rebecca? Absolutely. There's a couple of places. Um, if you're in San Diego, I uh, you can find us at potentiatherapy.com uh, and on Instagram at potentiatherapy or Facebook, potentiatherapy. And then if you're interested in leadership or entrepreneur support, you can find me at rebeccaching.com or at Rebecca Ching MFT on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Michelle. Wow, I really loved what Rebecca shared today and her tips and resources. And if you know of somebody who is dealing with anxiety and would benefit from today's information, you can so easily share it through your podcast player. Or if you listen on my website, just go to thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash 023. And on the bottom of the page is a very simple way to share to any social media or through email. As a reminder, while you're there, you can access all of the show notes from today's episode. And I also have a list of 52 self-care tips, which I curated for busy women, which has ways of managing anxiety by doing nice things for yourself. So definitely pick up your free copy while you're on my website. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I do hope that today's information benefited you and I look forward to reconnecting next Wednesday. Bye for now.